Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the BTOG mesothelioma essential update. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, my name is Tom Newsom Davis. I'm a medical oncologist from London. Um, I'm proud, as they say, to be the uh, vice chair of the BTOG steering committee. We're very grateful for the support of our sponsors this evening, uh, which include uh, Hodge Jones Nellen, Lee Day, and Erwin Mitchell. Um, so, Getting my clicker to work. Um, here we go. The most important people, of course, of the evening are Dawn and Gina. If you have any questions regarding BTOG or you'd like to become a BTOG member, uh, please follow the websites uh, listed here and you can have uh, a, a look and sign up. Just to talk very briefly about the BTOG uh, conference we had last month, it was an amazing success. And I must admit, of going into it with some trepidation as to how many people would join up and how many people would be part of it. Uh, we had uh, 1,500 people register and just under 1,200 on the day being part of the meetings on the Thursday and the Friday, which was absolutely fantastic. Huge numbers in each session. Uh, and we were extremely uh, pleased about that and delighted to welcome uh, the hardcore of you back to the mesothelioma meeting uh, this evening. So please send your uh, questions coming. I have with my phone here, your questions will come through. So do please ask me if you'd like to put in your name and where you're from, like in blind date, that would be fantastic. It's always good fun to hear that and to remind people that we do have um, CPD registration for this um, meeting. If you send your feedback form, you will get a, a CPD uh, registration form back. So skipping forward without me doing it. So I'm just gonna go back. So this is the agenda of what we're going to do today. I'm going to introduce to you what can only be described as the Holy Trinity of BTOG. So we have uh, Professor Sanjay Popat, who's a medical oncologist from the Royal Marsden Hospital, Mr. John Edwards, who is a thoracic surgeon from Sheffield uh, Hospital, and Professor Corinne Favre-Finn, who is a uh, clinical oncologist uh, from the Christie in Manchester. And we're going to go through the three subjects here, and then we're going to do a bit of a Q&A at the end of it. So send the questions through, and I'd be delighted to uh, grill the uh, the the present uh, the the, the uh, speakers on your behalf okay so without any further ado i will hand over to uh, sanjay who's going to take us off on the drug treatments for mesothelioma thank you tom uh, and thank you everybody for dialing in it's been a really exciting time in mesothelioma in the next 15 minutes i'm going to give you an update of where we are now at and where we're going to in the treatment of mesothelioma so uh, we've changed a lot in terms of our attitudes and treatments over the last uh, 20 years. We had mesothelioma being untreatable in the 2000s, a questionable role for mesothelioma. In the early 2000s, consideration of surgery from the mid-2000s onwards, uh, colleagues confirming that post-operative radiotherapy has little, if any, value from 2016 onwards. And then we enter the immunotherapy era with a potential major role uh, in museum uh, from 2017, <clears throat> moving from a can, can't do to a can do attitude, which is fantastic uh, for our patients. So <clears throat> if you take home nothing from this talk, it is this message. Immune checkpoint inhibitors or CPI are now standard for inoperable pleural mesothelioma. The only two questions we've really got to ask is who needs upfront chemo and should chemo be given with checkpoint inhibitors? And here's the data that underpins these statements. <clears throat> so the biggest data set we have now, and the most important data set is the Checkmate 743 trial, which was presented at the World Lung Presidential Symposium in uh, 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 August of last year and is now published in the Lancet. And we had an update, which I was privileged to present on behalf of my co-authors at the IMIG meeting last week. This is the uh, first line randomized phase three trial of patients with inoperable plural mesothelioma with good performance status zero to one who are randomized to receive either standard chemotherapy, cisplatin or carboplatin with pemetrexid for up to six cycles, which is what we do all the time, or the experimental regime of nivolumab at three milligrams per kilogram every two weeks or ipilimumab low dose one milligram every six weeks for the regime carried on for two years. The primary endpoint was overall survival, and there's a number of secondary endpoints, as you can see there. Now, the trial met the overall uh, survival primary endpoint with a really very impressive 
median overall survival of 18.1 months for nivolumab and ipilimumab. And if you look at the right-hand side of the panel, you can see that the performance of the immunotherapy was pretty consistent regardless of histology. In epithelioid, 18.7 months, and in non-epithelioid, 18.1 months, which is remarkable. And if you look at the performance of chemotherapy, you can see in the epithelioid subtypes, it's inferior to what we see with um, immunotherapy with a median of 16.5 months. And what you see with the uh, non-epithelioid subtype is what we see in routine practice, a median survival uh, with chemotherapy of around 8.8 .8 months. And so in the non-epithelioid, we're having a hazard ratio of overall survival of a spectacular 0.46. So what does this mean? Well, this has to be put in the context with the um, <clears throat> quality of life data, which we presented at uh, the IMIG meeting of, uh, uh, last week. And if we look at the average symptom burden index, what are patients feeling from baseline and compare it through chemotherapy or immunotherapy, you can see with these series of graphs, with the patients with epithelioid subtype, we see a persistent uh, ongoing improvement in symptom burden index with immunotherapy, with a deterioration in patients with chemotherapy. And while we look at the what's happening with the non-epithelioids, we see significant and early significant improvement in the symptom burden index when it seems to be maintained uh, for patients on chemotherapy. Now, here's really what's really interesting. If you look at the overall health status, which is measured using a score called EQ5D3L, you can see that in the epithelioid subtype, the overall health status significantly improves, where actually it deteriorates a little bit uh, for chemotherapy. Whereas in the non-epithelioids, we're having the overall health status improving to what the UK population normal should be at. And it's markedly deteriorating for what we see with uh, chemotherapy. So overall, the improvements in overall survival are underpinned with improvements in quality of life for our patients as well. Now, this all needs to be borne in mind because one of the problems we have is that if you look at progression-free survival, there's crossover of the curves before seven months, which means that in about 10 to 20% of patients within the first seven months, chemotherapy is possibly the superior option in terms of time to progression. Whereas overall later from about seven months onwards, um, in terms of progression, um, immunotherapy is superior. And the other thing we need to bear in mind is the adverse events. So we have similar numbers of grade three to four ad treatment related adverse events for Nevo and Ippi versus chemo. But, you know, a, a, the quality of adverse events for Nevo and Ippi is very different to those for chemotherapy, which are usually reversible with time alone. And you can see there's almost doubling of the discontinuation of treatment rate due to treatment related adverse events. So we need to be mindful of the side effects of immunotherapy for the patients that we're thinking about. So the conclusions for immunotherapy is that nevo is superior to chemotherapy with consistent performance across histology. And in the non-epithelioid subtype, there's a marked overall survival benefit with little chemotherapy activity, big quality of life benefit with normalization of the health utility to the UK population. And in the epithelioid subtype, we have a more modest but important overall survival benefit with more nuanced discussion for patients regarding risks and benefits. If we might be using chemo and BEV as the comparator, if we're using chemo as a comparator, well, it's no, no question. We want to use Nevo and Ipi. But nevertheless, we still see overall, we still see quality of life improvement compared to chemotherapy. So nevo is the new standard of care, especially for non-epithelioid subtype, and it is available today in a early access to medicine scheme, uh, at least in England. So what does this mean? This means pathologists must report the subtype of malignant floral mesothelioma. Now, this data is suitable only to PS0 to 1 patients, and we note the inferior PFS within the first seven months. So for some patients, chemotherapy followed by immunotherapy may be the better strategy. And of course, this is not telling us anything about our surgical patients. So this is not appropriate for a surgical paradigm. So what do we know about relapsed mesothelioma? Well, uh, my colleague Dean Fennell presented the CONFIRM trial very recently, 
And this trial, we all participated in this in UK patients that had relapsed after chemotherapy. And after um, one or perhaps two lines of treatment, the majority of patients were third line patients, were randomized to receive nivolumab or placebo with survival as the primary endpoint, not nevo-ipi, but just uh, nivolumab. Now, what did this trial show? The primary endpoint was overall survival, and we did see a significant overall survival advantage compared to placebo. So not treating versus giving immunotherapy, we see a big survival benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.72. And this is mainly driven by the epithelioid subtype, which is, which is um, deriving the benefit, not the, the lower right-hand corner, the non-epithelioid uh, subtype, which seems to derive no benefit. So you're saying to me, hang on, this is a bit weird because didn't pop out, you present to us the promise data, which showed no benefit from immunotherapy. Well, if we look at both of these trials, promise, the crossover arm of promise and confirm, we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing a consistency of checkpoint inhibitor efficacy. If we look at six months PFS, median PFS, one year overall survival and median overall survival, the statistics are pretty much the similar. So immunotherapy provides a consistent benefit in the relapse setting. It's just that the comparators in these two trials promise and confirm were different. Indeed, the, if you look at the outcomes of the um, uh, non-epithelioid uh, group, uh, which is, the, the, sorry, the, this uh, slide has become poorly formatted when it's been uh, grouped together you can actually see that the non-epithelioid outcomes are equally poor for um, both the PROMISE group and the CONFIRM group, so they're both consistent. If you have a non-epithelioid patient, don't bother with immunotherapy second line, they won't get there. Give it to them first line. That's the key uh, take-home message. So the conclusions for CONFIRM, big meaningful overall survival benefit, one year of nivolumab versus supported care, little overall survival benefit in non-epithelioids. We didn't talk about pdl one we can do that, but the bottom line is it's not ready for prime time uh, use. Where are we going with trials? In the first line setting, this is where all the action is. We have the BEAT MESO trial, recruiting, randomizing patients to the best comparator arm at the moment, CARBO-PEMBEV, which I think is a very reasonable um, <clears throat> suggestion for patients with epithelioid uh, disease, randomizing them to that with the addition of atezolizumab. And we also, in other parts of the UK, uh, of the world, have the DREAMER trial looking at the addition of nivolumab. This trial will be very difficult, I think, to recruit to in, patient, in places where they have immunotherapy already available. And the Canadian global trial, which is recruited, and we're waiting the number of events, looking at the addition of pembrolizumab to uh, chemotherapy. So what about other treatments for relapsed mesothelioma? We just need to bear in mind there are other treatments. So this is in the pre-immunotherapy world. If you started first-line chemotherapy and you've still got some patients uh, going through, you could consider switch maintenance gemcitabine. The NVELT-19 study demonstrated a significant PFS benefit, but because of crossover, no overall survival uh, advantage. And we know the toxicities of gemcitabine very well. And we shouldn't forget the, uh, the Italian RAMES or RAMES uh, trial in which patients in the second line setting were randomized to receive gemcitabine or gemcitabine plus ramucirumab with a significant survival advantage, albeit this being a phase two trial, meaning that there's increased likelihood of type one uh, error with the statistical design. Finally, what about experimental treatments? Well, the big experimental series of treatments going through in the UK is the MIST trial led by our colleague, Professor Fennell at Leicester. We have five arms. The first two arms are biomarker stratified BAP1 loss or CDKN2A or P16 loss, and three arms, three, four, and five, having combinations of immune checkpoint inhibitors. Now, we've already had data from the first arm, uh, which Dean has presented previously and is now published, showing in patients with BAP1 or BRCA loss, giving recaparib, a PARP inhibitor, has a response rate of 12%. To me, a little bit disappointing. The fact that we had any responses at all, I think, is good news. And Dean is <clears throat> proposing another trial looking at maintenance nirapinib following chemotherapy versus immunotherapy. Now, I think this may need to have some uh, recheck given the data that, that we have. And uh, the final other thing to say that there are major changes afoot with pathology. 
At the IMIG meeting, we had an update from the WHO reclassification of mesothelioma. There are four things you need to know about. First of all, there's a condition called well-differentiated papillary mesothelioma. That's a low-grade tumour which does very well. That's now called a different term. That's called a well-differentiated papillary mesothelial tumour. Second, the word malignant has been removed from all definitions of mesothelioma because they are malignant by definition. Third, pathologists are asked to specify the architectural patterns and cytological features. Now, that's important because we as clinicians need to know what grade it is. Is this a high-grade uh, tumour which needs treatment straight away or a lower-grade tumour which may not need treatment straight away and can help with prognosis? And the fourth and most important point is there is a new diagnosis we need to know about. This is called mesothelioma in situ. This is a pre-malignant stage of invasive malignant mesothelioma. This is defined as a single layer of atypical cells when the surgeon can't see any abnormality at microscopy, at uh, uh, thoracoscopy, and the pathologists can't see anything other than the single layer of cells, and the radiologist says there's no pleural rind. This is a pre-malignant status. And it's, it's important there is uh, BAP1 and CDK N2A status known on this tumour. And we don't really know how it should be managed. Should they undergo surgery? We don't know the natural history. We don't even know really how to classify it according to stage because it doesn't yet exist. So big news. And we need to start using these terms in our routine day-to-day -day practice. And with that, I'd like to thank you very much for this whirlwind uh, 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 tour of systemic therapies. I'd like uh, now to hand over to my colleague, Mr. John Edwards. Uh, John, you'll all know very well, who is lead thoracic surgeon uh, and uh, a, line, uh, a leading light in the world of thoracic surgery for malignant uh, uh, pleural mesothelioma. John, over to you for your section. So thank you. So I'm going to be giving an update on surgical aspects, but I think predominantly the, the updates may well come in discussion because I think rather than me bleat on about what we should be doing and could be doing now, I think it would be more interesting to bring people in on that discussion. So I think it's always good to go back to what is the goal of surgery in cancer. And again, radical surgery is about trying to achieve a negative microscopic margin. And the goal there is local control. Now that obviously hits the buffers with mesothelioma in the basis that we are unable to achieve lasting local control. And therefore the buzzword really is, is complete macroscopic resection. Palliative surgery, again, may well be justified. We're not looking at trying to get negative margins, but we're trying to improve symptom palliation. And so when we're looking at the justification between the balance of risks and benefits, and the palliative surgery is about improving the quality of life, which may or may not improve survival. Radical surgery in, in inverted commas about improving survival, which may or may not improve quality of life. And the definitions of surgery are now well established. I know that there is continued discussion with, um, with, with people trying to think differently about, about some of these terms, but the, this is the best that we have. And it's clearly important to, to talk in, in consistent language and terminology. So when it comes to partial pleurectomy, the intention is not to gain a complete macroscopic resection, but is to try and improve the chest wall dynamics by removing the, the pleural tumour from the, um, the, the costal surface and also potentially from the lung surface compared to what all one would achieve with a pleuridesis, which is lung expansion. And the, the results of the MESOVATS trial are, are well-renowned. And the fact that there were 196 patients randomized between talc pleuridesis and VATS pleurectomy, and that there was no survival benefit seen between those two groups. I think it's quite useful to look again at the, the, the quality of life data that's achieved. Bearing in mind, if we just go back one slide, we're looking at the, the potentially that those patients at 12 months and beyond. So we're looking at 45 or 50 patients at 12 months um, who are assessed for their quality of life. And this compares very similarly to the, the data in the Checkmate 743 study, where there were similar numbers of patients in some of those groups and, and, uh, uh, and comments being made about the quality of life in, in them. And we can see here that although quality of life was only measured out to 12 months, there was a, a, a benefit in those that made it that far. And I think this is a, perhaps a recurring theme that we can pick up in discussion with, with Sanjay is in, in terms of how does one um, best work out who is going to be a longer term survivor because they are going to be the ones that, that may receive benefits from in a number of different types of treatment. And the same with lung function, there were modest changes that were not statistically significant in the MESOVAT study.
In terms of the meso-trapped trial, this was a, a kind of follow-on study from similar, the, the same investigators looking at patients with a trapped lung. And the intention was to determine the feasibility initially to randomize 36 patients in 18 months. And th these data were again um, presented by, by Robert in, at uh, IMIG last week. And you can see here on the left, the degree of selection that was required to identify patients with a trapped lung. In that over a thousand patients were screened for mesotrap at 18 sites. And yet there were only 108 patients that were found um, to have a trapped lung. So that's about 10%. And, uh, and of those, by the time there were exclusions, which you can see on the, the right-hand side, only 10 patients ended up being able to be randomized. And so th this study shows that, that uh, you know, we're going to struggle with feasibility for a study looking at, at VATS partial thorectomy with the decortication element for patients with a trapped lung. At the other end of the scale, again, the, the results of the, the Mars trial originally of extrapulmonectomy versus not are well known and have been well discussed. Um, again, modest changes in quality of life, but look, uh, sorry, in terms of survival, but again, look here at the number at risk. So in the 12 month group, um, the numbers at risk were, were, were very small. And, and so hence, it's very difficult to come up with, um, with, with any, any firm uh, comments about either survival or indeed in terms of quality of life. The numbers are just not there, but again, it's well recognized that the feasibility of us performing a randomized trial to investigate extra pneumonectomy further, the feasibility is just not there. Having said that, there are groups that are continuing with their investigation of extra pneumonectomy, and I, I know that Karina is gonna say something about the Toronto group um, and their SMART protocol um, of induction um, IMRT radiotherapy immediately prior to surgery, one week prior to extra pleural pneumonectomy. And they've uh, presented in Lancet Oncology um, data on, on 100 and 102, I think it was, very carefully selected patients. But I think the important thing to be looking at that is, is look at the survival um, of that selected group undergoing that select protocol. They've moved then into a smarter um, protocol which if you look on the, on the right includes either extrapluralneumonectomy or EPD. Um, and it, it's interesting to, to note that in this effectively phase two study, um, these patients have undergone EPD rather than extrapluralneumonectomy. Um, so what they are demonstrating is that it, it, there is so far some feasibility of performing um, IMRT prior to surgery. But, but when pressed as to whether they could perform a randomized study, um, when we discussed this in, at IMIG last week, it seems unlikely that the Toronto group are going to be in a position to perform a, a randomized study. What about extended pterectomy decortication and our, and our beloved MARS-2 trial? Um, and you can see here, of course, that this was a tremendous effort with a wide um, range of, of, of people in, in different centers um, who took part in, in MARS-2. And the schema, I think, is again, is, is well known in terms of having two cycles of platinum pemetrexate chemotherapy up front, followed by a CT scan and then randomization to either surgery, followed by four cycles or just going on to the up to four cycles of, of chemotherapy. And accrual, again, is well recognized that in January this year, the 335th randomization was performed, which is a, a fantastic effort for a surgical trial. And, and I'm sure that that when these results are, are the results of the primary outcomes are, are announced in two or three years time, we're going to um, learn an awful lot from Mars 2. Um, however, we can learn some things from the process already in terms of, of the selection and also get some ideas of where we may be heading. Um, I presented last week some of the results of, of our screening um, to the patients that were referred to us from the different centers. And looking again at, at some of the degree of selectivity according to the patients that ended up being being randomized and, and what i wanted to do is to look at some of the reasons why um, people were, were screened and, and maybe not even made it as far as a, a screening log before these were universal in the study and you can see here the degree of selectivity and when one looks at it by um, by different center um, with our own center at the top, including every patient with mesothelioma within our specialist mesothelioma MDT. Um, so this is without any degree of selection whatsoever. You can see that there are about 13% of our patients, 38 out of 316, um, that were 
that, that were enrolled in the study, um, the, the percentage from the other centres was greater, but of course there was selectivity in those that were referred to us. But what was interesting was to look at those, those coloured columns in terms of the outcomes. Um, obviously, it's not appropriate to, to split the survival in those 95 randomised patients, but I think it is quite useful to, to, to get some idea of, of, of that selectivity and what that means in terms of survival. So these were the, the curves that, that, um, of those groups, and you can see that those that were enrolled and randomised had a pretty decent survival here in days, it will be in months on the next slide, um, compared to those that withdrew, declined, or were ineligible for the study. And if you look at it in terms of, of numbers, um, the suggestion here is that 27-month 20, uh, uh, median survival was achieved in, amongst those patients that were, were randomised. And that, I think, compares very favourably with the degree of selectivity in the other studies. One of the issues with the original Mars study was that the, the, one of the criticisms was about the survival rate. And I think we're going to see here that we've got very comparable survival rates with the general surgical literature. So where do we go next? Well, David Waller, one of, of course, the, the, uh, the, the, the leading surgeons behind the, the Mars 2 programme, um, presented a number of issues in terms of, of where we might go with MARS-3, um, looking at, at the different aspects such as the, um, the degree of preoperative selection with more detailed surgical assessment, um, how we, we look to integrate with um, various induction regimes, and clearly it seems that immunotherapy will have to be within there, but there is the potential for including it in, in, in different ways. And then learning what we have in terms of doing our best to spare organs, and that may include the diaphragm as well as the pericardium in terms of our surgical techniques. So with my final slide, um, I guess the, the issue is that we can make some um, generalizations about the current status with about palliative surgery, which shows a modest quality of life benefits that hasn't really been acted upon. And that may be a discussion point, but with no proven survival benefits. And again, that we're not going to be able to, to look further at trapped lung, um, which is a surprise and also, I guess, unfortunate. In terms of that radical surgery, of course, we're waiting for the, the results of MARS-2, which are going to be more informative than any study to date, but which was applicable to less than 12% of patients in terms of enrolment. And the survival rates, as I've said, seem to be comparable. And uh, it seems that a, a randomized trial of extra pleural versus not is not going to be feasible. But do we need to have a closer look in the trial setting in, in, in the UK, knowing that we can deliver very effectively in terms of our trials? Do we need to look more closely at the radiotherapy and integrating that? Perhaps that's something that we can discuss. But equally, what should we do now that Mars 2 has reached accrual? And I, I imagine that will come up in, in the discussion um, you know, how should we be proceeding? Should we continue to operate or what should we be doing at this current um, moment in time? And how are we going to use that in terms of as systemic therapy um, includes checkpoint inhibitors? How is that going to be incorporated into further surgeries of study of, of, of extended peritomy decortication and potentially with radiotherapy with, with Smarter? So with that, I will move on to uh, our third esteemed speaker and uh, Corinne, it's, it's over to you. Many thanks, John. And I'd like to thank uh, the BTOG organizers and Sanjay for asking me to talk about uh, a radiotherapy update in the treatment of mesothelioma. So clearly the star of the show today is Sanjay with a result of Checkmate 743. But nonetheless, I will tell you about where radiotherapy fits in in the management of uh, mesothelioma. So this is what I'm going to cover, prophylactic radiotherapy, perioperative peri radiotherapy, and then finally palliative radiotherapy. And in terms of recommendation for standard practice, I will refer to the ERS, ESTS, ESTRO guidelines published in 2020. Um, but there are a number of other guidelines that uh, are available, published between 2018 and 2020. And I had the privilege in taking part in all of them except for the ASCO guidelines. The latest guidelines led by Sanjay, which are the ESMO guidelines, 
Uh, I was hoping to give you a little peek of it, but unfortunately, the paper is currently under review, so uh, I, I will not be able to tell you about them. But um, I think it's fair to say that with regards to radiotherapy, there is no major change compared to the ERS-ESTS estro guidelines. So I'm going to start with prophylactic irradiation of tracts, and this is what we're trying to avoid, these nodules on a chest wall that can sometimes be painful after procedures or such as thoracotomy, thoracoscopies, uh, insertions of drains. And the practice in the UK, certainly when we did a survey of practice in 2009, was to routinely um, deliver uh, prophylactic irradiation of tracts, and that was the case in 80% of the centres in the UK. That was, however, based on small um, studies that were underpowered with conflicting results. But now we can put our mind at rest. We have two definitive UK trials, um, one uh, so-called SMART trial and then the PIT trial that were published in 2016 and 2019. And very importantly, these trials were done in the modern era of chemotherapy, which was not the case um, with previous trials. You can see that with a SMART study uh, comparing immediate to deferred radiotherapy to tracks, um, there was no uh, significant difference between immediate or deferred radiotherapy, whether you look at the primary intention to treat analysis or whether you look at patients developing chest wall nodules anywhere on the ipsilateral hemiphorax. And then the uh, PIT study, um, which had, as you can see, a slightly different endpoint to the SMART study, um, then again, did not show any difference between irradiation of tracts and no irradiation of tracts. And you can see the differences between the two studies. Um, so in terms of inclusion, uh, there was no, inclu no, uh, no inclusion of open thoracotomy and dwelling plural catheter in the PIT study, and it was the case in SMART. There were differences with regards to the radiotherapy field size and as outlined differences in primary endpoint. So what does ERS-ESTS-ESTRO recommend? Should radiotherapy be used to prevent procedure tract metastasis in patients with mesothelioma? Well, the recommendation is that we should not uh, recommend prophylactic drain site radiotherapy in the routine clinical care. So I think we can put that one to rest. Now, moving on to perioperative radiotherapy. So you've heard John talking about the various procedures that are available. And I think it's fair to say that most of the studies that are in the literature were done in the context of extrapural uh, pneumonectomy which is no longer a standard radical procedure in, in the UK, the vast majority of the centers. So we have one randomized controlled trial of um, looking at the role of hemiphoracic radiotherapy post-operatively. So this is quite a complex study done in two parts. So the first part was about the feasibility of the surgery and the macroscopic resection. So patients PS01, age below 70, had three cycles of chemo, then surgery with EPP. If um, uh, then they had an R0 or R1 resection, they could be randomized between radiotherapy and no radiotherapy. So you can see there's quite a big attrition rate from the beginning of a treatment with chemotherapy surgery all the way to randomization to radiotherapy or no radiotherapy. The primary endpoint with regards to part two of the trial was local regional relapse-free survival. And as you can see from the figures on the right-hand side and the graph, no significant difference between the two groups. Also no difference in relapse-free survival and no difference in overall survival. But bear in mind that this study was uh, closed early due to poor accrual and was therefore underpowered. Now, clearly, we've heard that proctomy decortication is now becoming more uh, standard in the surgical setting. Um, so there are two prospective studies that demonstrated that hemiphoracic plural IMRT after EPD is feasible, has an acceptable toxicity profile, and has quite a good median survival of up to 26 months. 
And this uh, is now leading to the ongoing energy LU006 randomized phase three trial um, that is uh, um, randomizing patients after proectomy decortication and chemotherapy that can be given either neoadjuvantly or after surgery. And the patients are randomized one-to-one -one between uh, IMRT post-op versus no adjuvant IMRT. The primary objective is improvement in median overall survival from 12 to 20 months. And then this was the breaking news at ESTRO 2019, radiotherapy double survival for patients with mesothelioma. So that sounds quite intriguing. So this study is done in a slightly different setting. So in patients who have lung sparing surgery, but non-radical lung sparing surgery, so proven gross residual disease, uh, uh, PS0 to 2 patients, and they're randomized between um, radical hemiphoracic radiotherapy uh, or palliative radiotherapy. You can see the doses on this um, graph. Um, so 108 patients were randomized. In terms of two-year survival, 58% in the high-dose radiotherapy group compared to 28% in the palliative group. Median survival, 25 versus 12 months, and that is comparable to SMART. So you can see the big differences in survival. In terms of toxicity, um, the um, high-dose radiotherapy was associated with 20% acute grade 3 or more toxicity and 31 patients had a grade three, four late toxicity. So fairly toxic treatment. And this is intriguing, but needs a, a, a larger a confirmatory study. Now you heard John talking about the very intriguing, and I have to say um, fairly worrying SMART regimen. So not to be confused with the, the SMART study that took place in the UK of irradiation of tracts. So this is a Toronto uh, study. So this was a, a phase two feasibility study in PS02 patients who were resectable. And what's really scary is that Emiphoracic radiotherapy to a dose of a whole emiphorax to a dose of 25 in five fractions with five gray boost is delivered prior to EPP. And then EPP has to be given very quickly because obviously you want to avoid uh, major lung toxicity. Uh, and in this study they gave the, the EPP was uh, done at a median of five days after IMRT. They enrolled 102 patients and their aim was to demonstrate feasibility, which was uh, defined as a number of patients with grade 3-5 within 30 days of surgery. They had a pre-specified threshold of 35%. Of 35%. Now, as you can see from the results here on the, in the middle, unfortunately, almost half of the patients had 30-day pre-operative grade 3-4 events. So therefore, uh, this uh, was... Uh, not only a morbid treatment, but the feasibility threshold was exceeded. However, a median overall survival of 24.4 months, which is one of the highest reported in this setting, uh, is very encouraging and clearly multi-center studies are needed. But as highlighted by John, uh, the likelihood of a randomized trial is probably unlikely. And the smarter study, which uh, I won't go back to, uh, is ongoing. So what does ERSESTS estro recommend? Should adjuvant post-op radiotherapy be used in patients with uh, mesothelioma? The answer is that uh, radiotherapy, whether it's done after PD or EPP, should only be considered within the context of clinical trials and or included in national or international surgical registries, which is a very sensible recommendation. Now, the final part of the talk is radiotherapy for symptom man uh, palliation. So many of our patients have local infiltration of a chest wall, vertebral bodies and other structures causing symptoms, particularly pain. So can radiotherapy help uh, with the aim to palliate the symptoms? So we had... Um, up to uh, 2015, a number of very small uh, single center 
retrospective studies that had been done with a wide variation of radiotherapy dose and techniques. And there was limited evidence to support the use of palliative radiotherapy to treat pain. Now, the systems trial was published in 2015. And in this study, patients received a, a dose of 20 grain five fractions with parallel pairs to palliate the pain. They had a, a symptom assessment at various time points, and the primary endpoint was um, a palliation of pain at five at week five. And as you can see from the waterfall plots on the right hand side, um, quite a um, well a third of all patients recruited an improvement of pain at week five. And if you look at those patients still alive, it was almost one in two patients. So that led to the development of a systems two trial, which is ongoing. Uh, this time a randomized study that is comparing uh, the, the, the dose of radiotherapy used in systems 20 in five to a higher dose 36 in six or 13 five. This is a multi-center phase two randomized dose escalation study recruiting in a number of UK centers using more modern radiotherapy techniques this time, IMRT or 3D conformal radiotherapy. And I was very pleased to hear today from Noel O'Rourke that 85 patients out of 112 have now been recruited, which is a fantastic achievement. So again, back to our guidelines, what do they recommend? Um, it is suggested that palliative radiotherapy for pain relief should be considered in case of painful sites of disease caused by local infiltration of normal structures. Now, we've heard from Sanjay about the fantastic results of Checkmate 743. And an important question is where does radiotherapy fit in in the context of immunotherapy? So we know that radiotherapy has um, uh, been shown to increase tumor cell immunogenicity as well as inducing an immune response to neuroantigens. And although the role of um, sequencing of radiotherapy with immunotherapy has been well studied and continues to be studied in lung cancer, but non-small cell lung cancer, it's not quite the case in the setting of mesothelioma. So there are a number of studies ongoing looking at the feasibility of combining stereotactic radiotherapy with immunotherapy. And one of them was presented at World Lung last year by Dr. Rimner. Uh, it's a safety study of Avelumab, which is an anti-PDL1 plus SBRT, and they demonstrated that this combination is safe with 15% of patients experiencing uh, grade three or more toxicity with response and survival rates consistent with previously published results. And then in the UK, we have a mesoprime study led by Dr. McDonald and Dr. Harrow combining pembrolizumab with SBRT. Um, and this study uh, is at the very early stages of recruitment. I think only three patients to date have been included in this phase one study with an expansion cohort. So this is my final slide, the gray areas and where we need clinical trials. So since more and more of our patients live longer with better treatments, partly with immunotherapy, we now have this concept of oligorecurrent mesothelioma. And there's some data, although very limited to date, about the role of hypofractionated or SABER in this context, and we need more. And then what about um, a proton therapy? So I've told you before that um, standard pre-deconformal or IMRT treatment is fairly morbid and can cause mortality as well. We know with proton therapy that clear dosimetric advantages, but we have to date no robust comparative data on protons versus photons. And there was a consensus statement on proton therapy in mesothelioma that was published last year uh, from a US group. And they, they suggested that IMPT, so uh, immunomodulated proton therapy should be considered when available and delivered by experienced multidisciplinary teams. But clearly, we need more studies in this field. And with that, I'd like to thank you very much. And I will hand over to Tom. Corinne, thank you very much. Also to uh, Sanjay and, and to John, the, the three graces, I think, of, of BTOG and mesothelioma. Um, so the great thing about having speakers like you guys is that you don't have to worry about running to time. 
because they all run to time, um, even despite John's uh, impressive array of slides and um, what I thought was an extraordinary experience, which was hearing thunder in Sanjay's um, presentation, then me hearing it about five seconds later. I'm about, I think, about five miles west of you, Sanjay. So that was an interesting experience. We've got some good questions coming through. Um, they're all anonymous. Come on, be brave. Put your name down. I'd love to hear it. So um, first of all, we're going to think about pathology, Sanjay. So the first one goes to you. Um, the mesothelioma in situ, um, if you can't see it on surgery CT, how do we reach it? Um, and how do you diagnose it and how do you find it? So these are patients that pre present with a, a pleural effusion. And John will be putting his scope in, doing a VATS. He'll be having a hunt around. He'll be taking a few biopsies for good measure. Um, and these were patients with usually a asbestos history where you might be just concerned there might be something going on there. So that's what prompts the uh, investigations in the first place. Um, and it's really important because not every single patient with mesothelioma in situ goes on to develop invasive, diffuse, uh, malignant mesothelioma as you and I know it, but as a sizable proportion do. And we need to get a better understanding of this phenomenon because really mm. the, the key question is, does John need to go in and operate on those patients uh, at the pre-malignant stage um, <clears throat> or, or not? And these are these are some of the questions. But we really need, I think, to start getting our, our pathology a bit tighter than we have at the moment. John, you very politely got your hand up. Indeed. I think the, 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 the important thing is, is that we indeed don't know enough about mesothelioma in situ and my suspicion is that it will also be a diffuse process um, we, we we don't we just don't know enough but, but certainly the first time that we see mesothelioma it is a diffuse process and it doesn't really matter where you take from where you take the biopsy and i suspect the same will also be true for this but i think the, the key message for thoracoscopists of either surgical or respiratory um, persuasion is to ensure that, that multiple biopsies are taken from multiple sites. And I think that is also a, a key message when it comes down to the stratification of patients for therapy. Um, and uh, Sanjay you know, mentioned that, but I think it is worthy of, of, of emphasis that it is crucial to ensure that we know whether this is a pure epithelioid um, or whether this is actually a, a, a biphasic tumour. Um, seeming as it, it seems that, that that alone is a sufficient stratifier to change potentially completely our first line treatment. Thank you, John. In fact, we, we, we talked a little bit there about the importance of pinning our pathology colleagues down as to the, the subtype of, of mesothelioma. What should our colleagues be saying to their surgical colleagues in the MDT? So they've had the VATS and their surgical colleagues have well, done the VATS and about to move on to the next patient. What, what should we be quizzing them about or what, what was seen? Um, if we're going to be making sure that we have properly assessed our mesothelioma patients, people presenting with an effusion, sorry, which has been investigated. So I, think, I think the, the, what, the important contribution of the thoracoscopist, and dare I say it, you know, predominantly this is probably swinging more to local anaesthetic thoracoscopy than, than surgical in, in many centres, our own in particular, as well as many others. Um, but I think, you know, what the thoracoscopist can contribute is the, the teeth stage of the tumour. Um, and uh, and so that you know that that is is as much a visual um, assessment as it is a, a radiological one. Uh, quite often, you will see a T1 tumor at thoracoscopy with nothing to see on on the CT scan. Um, so I think that that is is very important, and, and particularly um, when when talking within the MDT setting, to be able to say that there were definite nodules seen and this looks like barn door mesothelioma. That, that then assists the MDT when the pathologist perhaps might not see invasion on the biopsies taken. So I think the dialogue and the role, therefore, of a mesothelioma MDT is really crucial in, in determining the, the, uh, the correct starting point for, for decision making. Thank you very much. And just to say that question was from Isia de la Vina, who's very kindly uh, sent uh, through their name. Sorry for shaming you. Uh, we have a question from um, Clive Pidel, uh, well known to everyone. Um, very good shoes, I believe, in BTOG meeting last month. Um, occasionally we come across cases where the mesothelioma is very localised and ball shaped. Do these cases behave differently um, and how should we manage them? And that's for anyone who has an opinion. 
Yeah, well, I'm happy to start. I mean, you know, these <clears throat> cases are not few and far between, but they do 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 come up, and they're they're localized mesothelioma. They have a different uh, natural history, and they tend to uh, be less diffuse. And and personally, if you are going to operate on any form of disease, that's the type of disease that you should be operating on, frankly. And I don't think we we necessarily need a trial to to definitely tell us that. Um, but I, I'm interested in John's views. But my, my view on that is, is we should be aggressively managing those, assuming, of course, they're not a poor prognostic tumour, uh, which is sarcomatoid in the first place. So I, th I think Sanjay's last phrase was the important thing, is, is assuming that it's not diffuse. And, and experience that, that I've had tells me that probably half the time that you have a case which you think is a localised mesothelioma, you, you, you perform a thoracoscopy and you find that it is not. Um, and, and, th and that is a problem. Um, we've also seen recently a, a case, um, which I may term slightly curiously, a multifocal localized mesothelioma, um, where there was a case with two very definite chest wall masses that were de very definitely mesothelioma. And, and yet when we performed a pleurectomy, the rest of the pleura was entirely normal. So there are some very strange subtypes out there, and certainly it's, it's reasonably well established if one does a, a, a non-academic systematic review of the literature that localised mesothelioma has a better prognosis. Um, and on, it is really on that basis that we, that we go for, for primary surgery, perhaps with some radiation as well if we're concerned about margins, because I think you can get local control for those. But perhaps this is a, 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 an opportunity for, um, how should we put it, a, a BTOG real-world experience study. Mm. Um, because we, we, have, we all have a number of cases, but if we put those cases together with a, with a dedicated data set, I think we'll learn an awful lot more. So I uh, hadn't thought of this before, guys, but I think this is a BTOG mm. real-world experience study in the making. Keep Clive busy. Heard it here first. Oh, well, um, thank you very much. He um, asked the question, so he has to do it. Sandy, yeah. um, just going to talk, think about a little bit about um, Checkmate Seven Four Three. So amazing data, and this is this is great stuff, and clearly a, a change in what we do. And I think the argument is conclusively made for the non-epithelioids. These guys really benefit from combination immunotherapy, and chemo really doesn't work terribly well. Um, there's a few questions here about well. This is great for my epithelioid patients, but I don't see that many PS01 epithelioid mesotheliomas in my practice. Um, what, what do I do? How do I decide whether to give them nivipi? I'm not terribly experienced with that. Perhaps it's not a combination we've used very much in lung cancer. I'm worried about side effects. I've seen your quality of life data, but um, you know, is how do you advise someone to say, now's the time for a combination immuno, but at all, get on with your chemo, and keep your immunotherapy up your sleeve as second line. Well, what's your own practice? Well, in terms of histology, it's a slam dunk for the biphasics and the sarcomatoid. There's no, there's no question about it, as long as they're reasonably well. And you have to remember, to get into this trial, the patient had to be sufficient to be randomised to either carboplatin and pemetrexid or cisplatin and pemetrexid as per investigator decision. So the basic issue is, is your patient suitable for either of those two comparators aiming for six cycles of that and that should give you a good feel as to the type of uh, patient that you're you're after now the other issue is about systems so you have to have enough systems in place to ensure that you can deal with the toxicity of immune checkpoint inhibitors because actually they're reasonable now it is low dose IPI, but it does almost double the rate of immune related adverse events uh, that we see it certainly doubles the rate of um, tre uh, treatment discontinuations that we see. So you have to have systems in place to make sure that the patients that then develop adverse events are appropriately managed. So perhaps for some centres, it might be best um, treated in the cancer centre rather than the cancer unit, but that should be done on a geography by geography basis, depending on what sort of infrastructure and backup that you have. <clears throat> the most important thing is that we don't really know who those patients are that are the 10 to 20% that progress early in the progression-free survival curve. We don't really have a good feel uh, for that. Are they the ones that are the most symptomatic? Well, if we're talking about epithelioids, that may well be the case because certainly our experience of 
patients that had really become systemically unwell with significant weight loss, night sweats, drenching night sweats, LDH was very high in the PROMISE study, and we see signals of this in the confirmed studies that checkpoint inhibitors really aren't good for that potential uh, population. So I think we've got a lot of unknowns still out there from Checkmate 743. There is a, the other additional biomarker analysis coming through within the next six months, which I hope will really give us a better feel for how we can patient select. Um, but I think a combination of understanding what your local systems are for patient safety and whether they're well enough to be being randomized to the comparator should give you a good feel for uh, which patients you put in. Thanks, Sanjay. And Corinne, do you think that Sanjay's just ruined it all for radiotherapists now? Um, so we've got the combination immunotherapy. We are need to be a little bit cautious with immunotherapy and radiotherapy together. The evidence behind radiotherapy in immunothelioma, as you beautifully laid out, is, is perhaps a little bit more limited um, than um, other treatments at the moment. Will this push it more into the background or actually is this a great opportunity? Is this the opportunity for us to be achieving better control for patients now that we have better systemic options as well? Yeah, for sure. So I think it's the same issue as what we have in the uh, stage three non-small cell lung cancer setting is, you know, now we're entering the e era of immunotherapy. Where does that fit in in the sort of multidisciplinary management paradigm? Uh, and we have exactly the same questions in uh, mesothelioma. You know, now we know that immunotherapy, the first line setting, improves survival, particularly in non-epithelioid, then where does that fit in with potentially surgery and and or uh, radiotherapy you know in um, in some patients groups but um, what's intriguing me I, am I allowed to ask a quick question for Sanjay um, is the, definitely um, you know the, the lack of biomarker data in the mesothelioma setting compared to what's going on in non-small cell because um I mean, presumably the three, the Checkmate three seven four study doesn't have yet data on PDL one. No, we do. Status. We do, we do. So we do have data on PDL one, but it's an exploratory biomarker, and there was the hint that PDL one positive tumors did better. But the problem with that is you haven't controlled for your covariates, and we know that the non-epithelioids tend to be PDL one positive. So by the time you start getting down into the subgroups of epithelioid versus non-epithelioid versus PDL one positive versus PDL one negative you really don't have much power in these balanced subgroups so there's a bit more work that needs to be done around pdl one the other question we get asked around a lot is tmb but we know that in mesothelioma the tmb is always low so it's not really a very good discriminator so there are many other biomarkers that are being evaluated thank you sanjay uh, we've got uh, three minutes left we've got a couple of questions coming through um one i think for for john here um We've got a patient, for example, who wants to be referred up for MARS-2. Uh, obviously, they're going to get the message back now saying, terribly sorry, MARS-2 has shut. Is there a role for extended decoration um, whilst we wait for the results of that? Should we be saying to patients, yes, that's something you can consider, or should we just be closing that until we have some trial data to support it either way? I think it's very difficult, and I think that's down to some extent to, to patient, doctor, and surgeon choice. Um, it, it, there, there are patients for whom it makes perhaps more sense and those perhaps it makes less sense. And I think if you, are, if you were going to try to predict the potential benefits of, of surgery, it is probably easier to justify in patients with, with better prognostic factors such as tumour bulk, um, physical status and so forth. So I think if you had a, an early stage mes um, epithelioid cell type in a very fit younger patient, it would seem reasonable to, to, to consider an offer in, in that case. But clearly that would be with appropriate counselling to state that the benefits are as yet unproven. Um, the converse, I think, is, is equally true. Um, but I, th I think most, most surgeons will, will feel that there is a degree of, of acceptability. <coughs> but clearly as the... Um, standard therapy changes and is likely to change whilst we're waiting for the results of Mars 2, we need to consider the alternatives of, of, in, in, of that and, and whether that may be, for example, a Mars 3 protocol, which might appear quite quickly also. 
Well, thank you very much. We are we are pretty much out of time. One very quick question to you, Corinne. I've got a message asking what the M outcome, so the endpoints were for systems two. Was that quality? Was that pain control, symptom control endpoints for yes. that? Okay, um, I think we're going to we're going to wrap it up there. Um, so thank you very much, um, everyone, and my fantastic speakers, uh, Sanjay Popat, uh, John Edwards, and Corinne Favre Finn. Um, hope you found that um, as interesting as I did. We have um, some exciting things coming up. We've got ASCO in an hour in um, a month's time. That was actually our biggest selling, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, webinar last year. Um, so that's going to be on the tenth of June. Um, ASCO itself being on the week earlier, and it's going to be virtual ASCO disappointingly for everyone but um, as ever there will be a lot of very very important data coming out there and then the month uh so not month uh, shortly after we have our screening essential update that was um, our second highest achieving uh, meeting of last year extremely popular um and um had very good feedback from that so please do um join in there i'm just wondering whether actually those dates are slightly wrong and it shouldn't be uh that is correct uh, sorry, Thursday the 10th and Friday the 11th of June. So you've got your Thursday and Friday, middle of June, booked out for a perfect midsummer's evening. Um, so without further ado, we will close that session. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, don't forget to submit your feedback and you can get CPD uh, points in return. Thank you very much. <laughs>